Welcome to Dialogue, a podcast of A Living Letter Ministries. I am your host, Cynthia Beaudry. I welcome you to grab your coffee and tea and join Drew and I in our dialogue this month. You are so welcomed here and we are grateful that you are a part of this conversation. Today, Drew, I would like to talk about uh, A Living Letter Ministries and our involvement in civil issues and how we influence our political climate in this season. Can you talk a little bit about that, Drew? Absolutely. And thank you for the question. Uh, one of the realities that we're facing in our world is that um, the the view publicly on sexuality is increasingly moving away from what we would call like a traditional um, Christian or Judeo-Christian ethic on sexuality and to more, much more of a of a, you know, um, a broken, well, quite honestly, a broken view of sexuality. And the the viewpoint on transformation or discipleship or obedience to a Christian ethic is increasingly becoming a, a much more hotly debated topic. And one of the ways that we see that in our culture is honestly through through um, lawmakers and through legislation. And um, just this earlier this month, I traveled to Boston, Massachusetts to speak in front of the state legislature with uh, a couple other people from um, an organization that Living Letter is very closely tied with called the Changed Movement. And what we were doing there is we were testifying to the state legislature about the experience of transformation we've had um, from, um, you know, various levels of sexual brokenness in in homosexuality or or gender uh, brokenness or, you know, any number of those things. our transformation from that life to a life redeemed and restored to um, sexual health. And the reason we were there sharing that is because um, Massachusetts was considering legislation that um, would would effectively outlaw um, professional therapy for anyone who is under 18 uh, to address sexuality or gender. Um, from a redemptive or transformative viewpoint, of course, one of the catches to this is that it's never, it, it never uh, in those laws specifies, uh, or rather, it doesn't exclude therapists from encouraging people towards, say, a transgender identity or pro, um, pro LGBTQ orientation. So any any promotion towards a move towards the orientation or gender expression is completely. Uh, viewed as valid, but any therapy that would help someone address unwanted feelings of those nature um, is under this legislation viewed as um, illegal and barred for anyone under 18. And not only that, but this law went further to classify um, anyone who would offer that therapy um, as performing child abuse. Wow, that's intense. Uh, on, I know, it, incredibly intense. And actually, yeah. even a, a form of child abuse or a classification of abuse that require would require any mandatory reporter um, to report their knowledge that they were being offered this. So, I mean, it really was quite, quite drastic and quite um, hostile towards a Christian perspective. And so myself and... Um, a couple individuals, uh, Ken Williams, who is one of the leaders of uh, the Changed Movement, and then a friend of mine named Liz from Tennessee, and then two gentlemen, Angel and Luis from Florida, 
and I went and gave our testimonies in front of this legislative body to oppose this law and share that change is indeed possible and that to outlaw something that is proven effective for many, many people is essentially viewpoint discrimination and discriminating against against a people group that wants to address these struggles. And so that's that's something that um, that's what we were doing in Boston back at the beginning of this last month. So a living letter has been involved in this sort of thing before. Can you tell us a little bit about that situation in that time? Absolutely. Um, it was just about a year ago, I mean, just over a year ago last year, when um, Cal- the state of California was introducing a bill called AB 2943. And it essentially was, it was, it was a little different than what we just experienced in Boston because California passed a therapy ban for minors years ago. And um, what what this bill that was introduced was essentially going to be doing is it was going to be classifying not just for minors, but for any person um, and not just therapy, any offering, whether that be counseling, books, seminars, college classes, anything that suggested sexual orientation change, it was now going to move to classify those things as essentially business fraud and make it punishable by fines and restrictions by the state of California. So not only was has California removed the ability for minors to address these issues, but now it was essentially going to strip the ability for any adult to to seek a service um, similar, like a, 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 any professional services or products, including books, um, resources, seminars, uh, that would help them address their sexual um brokenness issues. And so, you know, that has wide implications. So like, you know, theoretically that could mean that, you know, my own book could not be sold in the state of California, that if I traveled to California to speak, that a church could not charge for the event or even take an offering. Um, That ministries like um, Living Waters and Portland Fellowship, uh, ministries that, that collect fees for counseling and services, could not collect those fees or services. And so essentially, they're trying to remove the ability of people to offer this service by cutting off their resources and, and their income and classifying what they're doing as fraud. And so when this law came up, I mean, it was very concerning for anyone who who offers these services in California, for anyone who wants these services to be offered in California. And so um, we began talking about this in, in early March, late February, and sometime around the middle of April, I had the opportunity to go to a conference at Bethel Church in Reading. And of course, Reading, California, and there's a ministry there, a wonderful ministry, led by Ken Williams and Elizabeth Wanning, called Equipped to Love. And you know, I connected with both of them at this conference, and we were talking about this because it had a serious impact or, or threatened a serious impact on their ministry being in California, and and so that they were pondering like what their response was going to be, and you know for anyone who hasn't heard of Bethel Church, it's a very influential church in kind of more the charismatic streams of the body of Christ as far as their teachings go, but I would rage to say that many many churches, no matter what their denomination, have been impacted by the music that comes out of Bethel Church, so it's a very influential church, and their senior leadership team felt very strongly that it was time for them to to really put their influence and weight and resource behind ministries like ours 
and defending the ability for people to find help. Right. Which, you know, Cynthia, you and I have been involved in ministry in this field for a long time. And I think it can speak for both of us to say that a church of that influence and stature to get behind ministries like ours is profound. Like, It's so encouraging. It's so encouraging because generally we don't get that kind of support. We don't get that kind of backing. But this church really decided that they were going to back this. And a lot and, of a lot of the times with a ministry like ours, you can feel like the Lone Ranger. Mm-hmm. And I, I I know you've described it sometimes as holding a paper cup against a tsunami. And yeah. it can kind of feel like that way when you are in this type of ministry. It really can. And and it was interesting because even with Ken and Elizabeth at Bethel, in their ministry at Bethel, you know, they hadn't really been launched onto a national platform at that point yet. They were doing what they were doing within Bethel, which has significant influence, but you know, they weren't looking for a national platform or national recognition. But when this law came up and they knew they had to respond to it, you know, the senior leadership of the church there and Ken and Elizabeth began seeking the Lord to say, what should we do? And the solution became they wanted to get together a book of testimonies uh, because, you know, you defeat the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. And they said, let's try to get together as many testimonies as we can put it together in a book, and then take this book to every lawmaker in the California state capitol and simply say the legislation that you are considering um, would essentially have removed the services that made a difference in all of our lives. And it was, you know, wow, they had a, that's they powerful. Had about, yeah. And they had about three weeks to pull that off. And anyone who's ever, like, written a book, which <laughs> I've written one, so I can say this as an authority... It's a long process to right. write a book. You don't you don't come up with the content, edit it all, graphically design it, send it to print, and That's have it amazing. ready to go within right. weeks. But we had this book. I mean, the, the, the Ken and Elizabeth and Bethel team had this book of 30 testimonies, exactly that, done, edited, put together, printed, and ready to hand out to each one of the lawmakers literally with the books arriving the day that we were to go and to do this. And in partnership with other ministries in California, like California Family Council and Church United and um, uh, Simpson University and a number of other influential churches, we had a rally basically scheduled for June 12th, which was the day that they were... um, going to be hearing this law in the in what they called the uh, Judiciary Committee. Um, and it also happened to be the second year anniversary of uh, the Pulse nightclub um, gay club shooting in Orlando, which is significant. And I'll tell you why in a moment. Okay. So the day before, uh, on June 11th, 30 of us dressed in shirts that said changed and, you know, that were designed exactly like the book cover, walked throughout the Capitol to every lawmaker's office handed out a copy of the book to That's the lawmaker. Mm-hmm. Wow. We Each one of us that were there that were in the book signed it, copies and wrote in it. And we handed it to each one of them and said, the law that you're considering is would have drastically, drastically impacted my life negatively if it had been in place. And here's my, our testimonies, and please consider not passing this law. So we spent that entire day doing that. Did you feel um, intimidated at all? Did oh, you feel? Oh Lord! Did you face any opposition while you guys did that? It was so 
intense. Because one of the things about civic engagement that is a reality is that when you go to a state capital to try to influence things that are happening, there are other groups there that are doing the same thing. Oh, right. And gen- generally, we had a lot of very liberal groups that were there lobbying for their own causes. And, you know, California is a very liberal state, and a lot of the lawmakers are not friendly to our position. There was a lot of nasty looks and comments to us as we walked wow. these halls. Jeez. But the thing that was really interesting is that we were an army of people walking through there. And it was so, yes, it was hostile, but there was this sense of like, you, we're not alone in this. And that was Hallelujah. that was something that was really powerful. As we were there doing this, there was this growing sense of like, you know, these were all people that, that in, in a moment's notice came from across the country to stand together and to say our lives have been changed and we will not sit back and allow you to take this opportunity for transformation away from people. And we all had this deep sense that God was doing something. We didn't know what, but he was doing something. <laughs> yes, and amen. Yes, and amen. And as we stood on the state capitol the next day on June 12th, we spent three hours giving testimony on those on those steps. We didn't have a single protester. Um, hundreds of people gathered, media gathered, and we uninterrupted gave glory to God for what he had done in our lives. That's beautiful. And it was overwhelming, the response. Um, and then going in and going into the hearing and registering our objections to the law, it was overwhelming how many people were there with us. How many pastors, how many Christians, how many believers, how many people just came to say, you know, we oppose this. And it was it was beautiful because even though we were there to oppose something that was being framed as like basically, you know, we're protecting the gay community from this awful thing, the spirit of every one of us that were there to oppose that was gentle and kind and respectful. Uh, it was loving. It was, it, but we we were not treated with the same respect from the opposing viewpoint. There were people that stood and you know shamed us publicly, and and one of the things that was profound was that even as the 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 writers of the bill were presenting the bill, um, positioned it in such a way to say, you know, we need to pass this bill because this is the anniversary of the greatest massacre of of the gay community in our in our country, the Pulse nightclub shooting. And, you know, we need to stand and honor that tragedy by passing this legislation to protect the LGBTQ community. Well, after that was said, then we had two individuals that got up there, Luis, um, uh, Luis and Angel, and their stories were, yeah, two years ago, today, I was shot in the Pulse nightclub Orlando shooting Wow. I gave my life to Jesus, and I'm here to wow. say oppose this law. And, I mean, you know, you can't... They, they were trying to hijack the tragedy while there were two victims of that tragedy there saying, no, I'm sorry, you don't get to hijack my tragedy for political gain. We're here to say God transformed our lives. Hallelujah. And, you know, that was, I had the pleasure of being in Boston with the two of them as well and uh, when we were engaging with this issue. So what was the outcome of that whole event in California a year ago? So the outcome was they passed, they, they moved to pass the law. It went to the, the Senate floor. They passed it there, and it was going to go to the governor's desk to be signed into law. And at the last, like literally the midnight hour, the lawmaker who wrote it pulled the bill, and it did not go through. Now, I don't know why he did that. You know, there's a lot of speculation 
Um, there's speculation that he's going to represent the bill again this year. Maybe he felt like he had a lot of support, so he wants to make it even more restrictive. Um, I don't know, but I know that it did not go through this last year, which was, you know, at least a victory. But yes, but I think the bigger victory that um, has been really evident in what God has done since is that <clears throat> really, you know, it's like in the book of Esther, when Haman is constructing the gallows to hang Mordecai to ba- basically annihilate the the Hebrew people, he's building these gallows thinking he's going to win and he's going to have his way. And literally what ends up happening is he gets hung on those very gallows as Mordecai and Esther save the entire people. And it felt like, and it still feels like, when they presented that law, they were building gallows and they have been in their own minds celebrating, but they have no idea what they caused to form with this changed movement because it has only grown since then. And when we yeah. started with like 30 testimonies, the book has now been republished with 60. Wow. More, yeah. more and more people are joining. There are hundreds of people that are now on an online group that are finding hope and support. Um, ministries that have been disconnected before are connecting through this and, and building each other up. Thank you, Lord. And um, there's just a deep sense of camaraderie and synergy um, bringing together generations in difference, you know, different generations in this movement. Because, you know, we've been part of it for years, Cynthia, with like Exodus and Restored Hope and that kind of old older generation of pioneers in this field. Well, they're, they are getting older and, and, you know, there has to be younger life that comes to continue to carry on this mission. And what we're seeing through the change movement is that there are many lives that are being radically transformed by Jesus. And now there's a, there's a banner that they are uniting under, not um, as a controlling banner, but a unifying family and that has been overwhelmingly amazing to watch. And like I said before, Ken Williams and Elizabeth Wanning and Bethel Church, I mean, they didn't set out to begin a movement. Right. But they they have become it. And right. I can say that they are two very, very humble, very godly, very capable leaders. And it's amazing to watch the team that God is bringing around them um, in, and the the opportunities that we have had at a living letter to help walk in partnership with them. I mean, it's kind of cool. We're the closest, one of the closest ministries to them geographically, and we have a great connection with them. And so it's been a lot of fun to continue to walk in relationship with them. And um, now with Boston, what Boston was was the first of several um, possible partnerships with with ministries from across the country to engage civically with these laws. Currently, there's 14 states that are considering similar laws to, to Massachusetts. And in the past, there's been really no mobilized effort to bring testimony to oppose those laws. Well, now Changed is really heading up teams to go and engage with these these laws and represent the testimony that Christ can transform people and that everyone has a right to choose whether or not to leave that lifestyle or not. And we should have every resource available to us 
to do that. So it's been cr- quite profoundly um, cool to be a part of that and to watch the Lord move. For sure. There's another scripture in Esther that talks about for such a time as this. Mm-hmm. And in that verse, it actually says, like, if you remain silent, then relief and deliverance is going to come from somewhere else. You have been given your royal position for such a time as this. Yeah. And so I really feel that's applicable to like the change movement, to, to a, a living letter ministries, to all of us that are mobilizing together yeah. to, to have a voice. We're not remaining silent in this. Our stories are valid. Our testimonies are true. Um, and yes. to have the opportunity to share that with the elect leaders is really powerful. And I think that, um, that this scripture also applies in Esther to our, to our movement. Absolutely. And one of the things that I, I really... I really appreciate about the story of Esther in regards to where we're finding ourselves now is that, I mean, Esther did not like set out to engage in like this. I'm sure she didn't like dream about how she could shift a nation through her influence. (laughs) And, you know, we've been in ministry together a long time and, and, you know, I've never wanted to be involved in anything political. No, we never have been. Never have been. Never wanted to be. In fact, drew some criticism in the past from not being involved. For sure, for sure. In politics. And I remember someone asked once, like, well, what what shifted for you that now, now you're speaking up and now you're getting involved? Because um, in the past, you know, when there's been a lot of, of people wanting us to draw us into political um, conversations with, say, like, um, you know, when the baker in Oregon was, was, um, attacked for not baking the cake or, you know, you know, any number of those of the florist in Washington and all that. Right. Um, you know, I, I, we eventually, I eventually did comment quite a bit on, on what I felt the Lord was telling me to speak to that issue, which was not, you know, how dare the government, although I, I don't love the government for compelling anyone to do anything that they feel as a violation of their conscience. But what I felt, was even more of a need for us to speak to was that the church also doesn't have the right to compel us to action when it's a gray area. Like it's not a sin to choose how we engage with people in the marketplace. And so, you know, I spoke a lot about like, we have, we have the Holy spirit in us that we can choose to engage. We can choose to communicate our position and still bake a cake. It doesn't have to mean that we're portraying Jesus by putting buttercream on a baked good. You know, it's like we can actually wrestle through that and be in right standing with God. But that wasn't political conversation or political discourse. It wasn't going in front of lawmakers and saying, yeah, Christians could bake cakes if they want to do, but don't make us. You know, that was more what I felt called to in that moment, which is exhortation to the church to consider these things and weigh them. But when it became that adults were no longer going to be able to to hear a testimony. Right. When it became that even right. potentially the Bible, when in First Corinthians, you know, six, nine through eleven it says, such were some of you suggesting sexual change. When it becomes so ambiguous in the writing of the laws that even the scripture could be viewed as offering sexual orientation change and therefore be subject to fines or banning in a state. Now, now you're saying that I can't tell my story. Right. And, and that was, you know, for me, that was the, the bridge too far or the, the, the line of demarcation where I'm like, 
I don't want to have to be involved in politics, but it, but I cannot stay silent. And so whatever I'm going, whatever I'm able to do, I will do. Yes. I never believed I would be traveling the country and going to states that I'm not even a part of to oppose lawmakers, <laughs> but there I am and, and there I will go. And so um, that's that's been a kind of a morph or an additional mission that's been added onto a living ladder in this last year is we will engage in civic engagement and be advocates for the rights for people to be discipled and to be helped when it comes to sexual health and sexual integrity. And, and that is something that we are passionate about and we will do and we will engage with. And I, I really appreciate that. I, f- I feel so grateful that we can be a voice for the church because not everyone can just pick up and go right. to Boston and to California and to stand in the, in the gap right. and to advocate and to present our stories as valid and true and powerful. Right. Um, but that's the opportunity that God has given a living letter. And so when we when people partner with a living letter, they're partnering with that. That's exactly right. And that's right. something that I'm so grateful for. Can you tell me, so the experience in Boston, how was it similar? How did it differ from California? Yeah. One of the things that was so concerning about the time in Boston um, and how it differed was that in California, you know, there were several organizations that mobilized the church, the body of Christ mobilized, you know, people spoke up, people talked about it, people were made aware of what was happening. And so the outpouring of public support for our position was large. There were hundreds of hundreds of people that were with us. In Boston, it was barely anyone. There was there was an organization, the Massachusetts Family Institute, which had invited us to come and and help testify. They had two other people that they had as witnesses. There was a lawyer from from Colorado Springs that was there and another lawyer uh, from the two lawyers from the Massachusetts Family Institute. And there was us. And then there was one therapist and one pastor. And that was it. And the level of hostility towards our message towards our viewpoint was incredibly palpable not even not 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 even good enough it was i remember watching the live stream and i and i'm we're actually going to play a clip here on this podcast of your three minute testimony that you were able to share with legislators which is incredible that we have that footage but also their response back to it and i remember sitting in my home watching this live stream because i was just kind of broadcasting it on our, our social media pages right and thinking, this is really intense. It was vile. That's yes. the word. Vile. Yes, absolutely. Demonic, if I could yes. even go so far. Yes. Um, because the hypocrisy and the the um, sheer obstinance of entertaining a different idea or entertaining a godly principle was was so vehemently rejected, and. It was, I mean, it was intense. It was, it was absolutely intense. We were publicly rebuked. Um, two of our, t- of our team that were there, Angel and Luis, who had survived the Pulse nightclub shooting, were accused of, of um, exploiting their tragedy and the tragedy of the gay community. Um, they were personally attacked and they were, yeah, they were not given any opportunity to respond to the personal attacks. That's the level of obstinance that is there. So... Uh, the level of obstinance and and 
just vehemence and, and guile towards us was so profoundly deep that when Ken and, and Liz and myself testified, Ken and Liz both shared as part of their three minute testimony, the reality of sexual abuse in their, in their stories. And, you know, I didn't share that because that's not necessarily a part of my story, although sexual defilement and, you know, I could have added a lot, but I had three minutes. So, but they added their stories of sexual abuse. And when we were done, there was a lawmaker who basically said, and when they play the clip, you can hear it, that he was offended at their suggestion that they would have the audacity to share that they were sexually abused. Um, because that was just offensive and that there are children in this room. How dare you kind of kind of statement. And well, I don't understand why he would be offended at someone sharing that the fact that they've been a a sexual abuse victim, because to, to take away the rights of children to receive therapy that have been sexually abused because sexual abuse can affect our sexual orientation. They're essentially lobbying for a law that says that no child now has the right to process their sexual abuse if they think it's affecting their sexual orientation. And so the suggestion that we would say that part of our stories include that, and that contributed to our confusion sexually, and essentially you are taking away the rights of victims from receiving the therapy and the help they need, that he's offended at that fact, that we would suggest that, because essentially he is taking away the rights of children to receive the therapy they may need for you know for any level of confusion that can come from sexual abuse and i'm sorry but any person who's been sexually abused especially if it's from someone of the same sex is going to have questions about what that means for their sexuality and they are not given the right under this lot of of even saying that you know it's funny because you know it's a controversial you know uh, uh documentary but there is that documentary that recently came out the you know leaving neverland and talking about, you know, the sexual abuse uh, allegations from Michael Jackson, from these two men that were children in, involved in his life. And in the interview after the, the movie, which was done by Oprah Winfrey, one of the men stated in the interview, you know, I was so confused about what this meant to me yeah, and my sexuality. Right. Right, right, right. And immediately was cut off, not allowed to really go further into that because... And process that, because yeah. Because it's a secular... It's a secular testimony to basically state sexual abuse by someone of the same sex affects how we view our sexuality. Absolutely. What does Absolutely. this mean to my sexuality? And so, you know, that, that lawmaker obviously was very hostile to the reality that, that we were essentially saying you are taking away the rights of children to be able to process how their abuse affects them. And he rebuked us for sharing that. And then Ken did an incredible job of responding, saying, you know, you are telling me by your offense that I don't have the right to share my story, my story of abuse. And he was very gracious in, in re- responding to that. Honestly, you all were. You were very gracious and compassionate with your words. Well, thank you. Yes. There was a great temptation not to be, but <laughs> the Lord abided. Um, it was it was a profoundly different experience in California because of the lack of a concern or or awareness of the church. Right. Because I mean, really, if the church was aware fully of what this law was doing, I would hope that there would be a greater response. 
But I think one of the other things that's been slightly disheartening about this and motivating to continue to speak our testimonies and to proclaim publicly and persistently that God does change people is that there's this belief in culture that somehow there's been scientific proof that therapeutic efforts don't work. And that's 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 a rhetorical lie. It's just someone repeating, you know, whatever, right. whatever they want to be the information enough times so that people think it's actual scientific fact. And yet there's been eight different studies done on the effectiveness of therapeutic efforts for those who want to leave sexual orientations of bisexual, homosexual, transgender, those those different issues, and a rather successful rate of change and experience of change and a remarkably low rate of reported distress or harm. Amen. Yeah, And so true. we need to share these things and we need to get that information out there and the church needs to understand and not be misdirected in wrongly directed compassion um, to believe lies that, that degrade not only what is scientific proof, but also... What the Bible says. Right, what is theological truth, <laughs> that transformation Seriously. happens for those who submit Amen. their lives to Jesus Christ. Right. So that's, yeah, we get very, very, very passionate about that. If we could actually play the clip right now, uh, we have a, a about seven minute clip. Three minutes of it is Drew giving his testimony before legislators in Boston, and then they respond back. And I just remember watching this, and out of all the testimonies that were given, the legislators never had a response, but they did have a response for Drew. So let's play that clip right now for you guys to listen. Hello, uh, my name is Drew Gariessa. Thank you for allowing us to share our stories today. Uh, I am a pastor, a husband, a father of three beautiful daughters, and I left behind a gay relationship and a gay identity over 20 years ago. I first recognized that I was attracted to the same sex at 12 years old. I struggled deeply with my same-sex attraction, not because I feared any rejection from my family, but because I did not want to be gay. These attractions were in direct conflict with my faith and my desire to marry a woman and have kids someday of my own. I wanted that family. It wasn't until I was 22 years old that I finally found counseling and support to help me with my sexual struggles. I wish that I had found that counseling when I began to struggle with my orientation as a 12-year-old. I can tell you honestly, it would have saved me a mountain of hurt and destructive behavior had I found that type of help earlier in my life. Without that help, I would not have become a husband to my wonderful wife, Suzanne, of 15 years. Without it, I would not have my three beautiful daughters. And because of the, my sexual attraction being in such direct conflict with my faith and deeply held beliefs, I would not have pursued my calling as a pastor without that help. In the ABA Handbook on Sexuality and Psychology, Dr. Lisa Diamond, one of its editors-in-chief and a self-identified lesbian states that it is critical, critically important for clinicians not to assume that experience of same-sex desire or behavior is a sign of latent homosexuality, and instead allow individuals to determine for themselves the role that same-sex sexuality in their lives and their identity form. Also in her research on sexual fluidity, she states that sexual orientation does not come in two types, in rigid sets of exclusively homosexual or exclusively heterosexual, and that most people find themselves in that sexually fluid middle ground. Passing HB 140, 
or SB 70 would essentially be discriminating against those that are legitimately wrestling and with their conflicting desires. It forces a conclusion on these individuals that there is only one outcome for their sexuality, and that just isn't true. It certainly wasn't true for me. How can a person be allowed to determine for themselves the role, affections, or desires play in their identity if they're not given the benefit of therapy that would allow them to explore the full possibility of sexuality and identity, whether that be toward a homosexual identity or a heterosexual identity? Please do not discriminate against people like me. Please do not remove client autonomy from those with unwanted same-sex attraction or gender struggles. People should all have the right to choose their own path and not have those rights stripped away. And parents should not have to fear retribution from the state if they are wanting to find help that their children want in pursuing help with unwanted sexual desires. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm all done. You're welcome to. I'm so all done. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you all for sharing your stories. I really much, I very much appreciate that. And I just want to ask if there are any questions. As I mentioned before, I used to run an organization for LGBTQ middle and high school youth. And when they encountered folks who had made different decisions, like yourselves, at things like youth pride, or people that didn't share their values, or hollered at them uh, from the side of the street, my advice to them was always, take a deep breath and walk away. It's not worth engaging. We're not going to change minds. Uh, but I'll admit, fast forward a couple of years, now having a seat at the table, uh, with, and with kids in the room that are hearing what you're saying, it's hard to be quiet. Uh, you're adults. This is America. You've made choices for yourself. I'm happy that you're married. You have three beautiful kids. You're an ordained minister. I have the same. An ordained minister with three beautiful kids. Uh, I'm also gay. I have a husband. And we've made different choices in our lives. Many of you have alluded to going to religious therapists. I just want to continue to reiterate that nothing in this bill would force your religious leader would force your church to adapt any different message. It would force them to adapt a radical, inclusive message of Jesus. It wouldn't force anything upon them. They could continue to be ministers preaching what they want to preach and teaching what they want to teach. But the thing I think that hurt me the most to hear was the continual association with sexual orientation of being gay and trauma as a youth, specifically being molested by a man in one's life. Uh, this stereotype has built and built and built so much that I think it's so important that we all confront it head on because LGBT folks are not child molesters. Uh, we are not created because of the indecent choice of another person. Sexual assault is not something to talk about so freely and flippantly. Uh, and I take offense, to be honest, with the idea that people are gay because they have been, their genitals were touched at a point in their life that wasn't of their choosing. Uh, people are gay after going to Canada. Later in life, they decide to be gay. Uh, people go to Disney World and five years later decide that they're gay. It has nothing to do with these events in their lives. And nothing in this bill would prevent therapists from exploring true trauma that has been experienced by people of all sexual orientations. Again, you're adults. This is America. You've made these choices. But I think it's so important for kids to not be forced by their parents or by anyone to make these choices before they're ready. And to go to a therapist, not with a foregone conclusion in mind, but as I believe the bill is written, and if it's not, please help me see where it's not there, but with therapists who are going to explore who they are with them and help them decide who they are and who they're becoming, not with a foregone conclusion that they have to be straight or have to be gay. Uh, 
but really, you are making your choices. I'm happy for you making those choices. But for the young people out there who are struggling at a younger age, I hope that they know that there's a world of possibilities out there. Thank you. I respond to that. Yes, Mr. Lewis, um, it felt to me, I, I appreciate the sensitivity here. Like, I certainly know what it's like to be mocked, ridiculed, all of that. We, we, we love gay people, we love LGBTQ people, we're advocating that there should be rights for people to determine whatever path they'd like to take. What doesn't feel fair is to remove from the table the potential to move from gay back to straight if that's what the person would like to pursue. And it's, it's a, you know, in the nicest possible way, it felt like you were just saying to me that I shouldn't have a right to share my own story. I did not suggest what someone else should do. I'm trying to protect the people group that now has having rights taken away from them to get professional help. The church is not adequately equipped to help these people like us. We need to be able to go to professional. I went to a clinical psychologist who helped me. And it changed my life. Wow, that was so intense. And I'm so grateful that we were able to capture that and record that interaction. I just want to remind everyone who is listening and everyone who supports us, when you support us, you enable us to be a voice and an advocate for the church. And, I, and thank you for saying it, that, that for those who support our ministry, like they support our ability to do this. Yes, uh, it needs to be yes. said, nobody paid us to go to Boston. No, I remember you you called me and said, "Hey, I just got a I got a call this morning saying, mm-hmm. I, are you available? Can we can we fly you to Boston?" Mm-hmm. And our ministry is specifically that's what we do. We want to be a voice for the church. We want to sit in the, in the gap for the church. Right. We want to advocate for our stories. Our testimon- testimonies are valid and true. Yeah. And and that's the and, thing. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. We have to raise support in order to be available to do that. Right. We have to raise support in order to be available to go and speak in churches and answer the call to to go and, and be a part of things like this. And um, so for those... And especially because you said there was such a few yeah. representatives of the church yeah. that were in Boston. Yeah, there was. And you and, we, and Living Letter got to be a part of one of those representatives, <laughs> just the handful that were there. Isn't that ridiculous? That a little, it's amazing. That a little ministry in Oregon got called upon to fight tyranny in Boston. I mean, Hallelujah. come on. Thank you, Lord. Thank yes. you, Lord. And the connections that the Lord is making to be able to do that are miraculous connections. Amen. And, and you know, that's that's something that we really do need to, 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 I guess, say more of, and that we need your support, that we need the support of people who believe in what we're doing. You know, this last month I've been in, or in the last two months, I will have been in Minnesota, Massachusetts, Washington, Oregon, in California, multiple trips. And the reason I can do that is because people in the body of Christ believe that this is something that needs supporting. And, you know, we can always use more support. It's been so, I mean, it's been really extremely hard and persecuting, but at the same time, energizing. Yeah. And um fulfilling to be on the front lines of where God is moving yes and to be you know when you you came back and you gave testimony you shared with me you called me and you're like oh my gosh this is what happened and this is what I experienced and I just remember thinking this is the book of acts unfolding yeah in modern Drew context. was standing you know living letter was standing in front of legislators and state officials and was able to articulate the gospel 
And to me, I was like, this is a, this is a Bible story. This is where Jesus is at. <laughs> yeah. And I want to be a part of that. And I'm so grateful that I am a part of that. But it's also just so important for us to be aware of, of the issues that are going on, the, the laws that are being presented, yeah, that are pre- being presented to silence the church. Because we, as a, as a body of Christ, we do have our own voice and we do have rights. Yeah. And, and, you know, this country was built on, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. And so how do we protect that? How do we advocate for that? And so I'm so grateful for you, Drew, to be able to just kind of like in a split second, just go to Boston and just represent us and advocate for us and speak on our behalf and share that our testimony of transformation is legitimate. And we, we have a right to that. So thank you so much for doing that. Well, you're very welcome. You know, it is, it is what we're called to do. Um, it, you know, it's, it, the thing that can be feeling a little overwhelming at times is that there's, there's so much need, like, um, you know, in the next couple of weeks, I'll be traveling to California twice. And I just got back from California yesterday for another trip. And, you know, we'll be heading to Washington state and, and up to the Portland metro area. Like, these are the things coming up in the next three to four weeks for me. And consequentially, because of that, those are all equipping events where I'm sharing in churches and, you know, doing that part of activism and ministry to say the church needs to understand to be equipped. So that, because let, let's face the reality, you know, the, the law in, in Massachusetts is going to go through it. You know, there's there's so much support for it. It's going to go through. So ultimately, what the, the truth of the matter is, is that our civic engagement is not necessarily because we believe we're going to stop these laws, but because we will continue to share the testimony of Christ, even under persecution and Amen. even under um, compelled silence, we will continue to proclaim what God has done. And that's where it is very X-E. Um, but the thing that I'm very passionate about as well is that knowing that this is the reality, knowing that this is the way the law is going, knowing that um, the less services are available in the professional realm, the more the reality settles in that the body of Christ needs to be equipped to disciple this community. Because ultimately in California, as I said multiple times, nothing's stopping you from going to your pastor and getting prayed for. And they were saying it very (laughs) mockingly, like, you know, good luck with that. Because so much of the church is ill-equipped to deal with this, which is why a living letter exists as well. Because everything I'm doing over the, the next month is going and helping equip the church to respond to those who are hurting within their congregations. Because the church yeah. is going to be the last place where people can go to receive the help they need. If you could have a desired outcome for California and for Boston, for every state in the United States, and for a living letters involvement in it, what would that look like for you? You know, I think like what I said, um, Living Letters involvement, my, my desired outcome is that we are, um, to the best of our ability and resources, able to partner with those who are going to proclaim the gospel. Um, you know, like I said, I've been, it's been a very busy month, and it kind of breaks my heart that right now, I think it was is this next week, um, a similar law is being considered in Maine. And because there's a lack of resource, because... You know, many of us on the change team are busy trying to equip the church. None of us can really go to it. And oh, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, there's there was one person that was able to say I'm I'm available to go, but like we really don't want to send one person. 
Like, you need to at least go in, like, a squad of three. In the coming months and weeks, there's going to be many different states that are doing this. So my heart and prayer for Living Letter is that we are able to go and speak on behalf of the church wherever we're able to. And for the church, for the church in California, for the ch- actually for the church in every state, my prayer is that they would passionate, become passionately aware of the fact that it's the call of the church to make disciples. And making disciples is to help people be transformed into the image of Jesus. And that includes anyone who struggles with LGBTQ issues. That incl- that our, our responsibility of the church is to know how to minister to this community, is to know how to communicate to this community so that instead of them feeling like church is the last place they should go, that they feel the invitation to come and be transformed by the Hallelujah. presence of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Yes. And so that's our primary mission. It's our primary mission at A Living Letter to proclaim that message and help equip the church to, to be a place where people that are struggling with these issues can come and find the saving, transforming grace of God. One of the things that has, has been a little disturbing to me re- recently is I've seen within the church so much division happening and so much criticism in this area um, where people are criticizing those of us who are trying to offer help to that community and trying to offer help to the church to understand and respond with truth and love. It's this old thing where if it's not like 100% truth of, you know, you're going to hell and and homosexual, you know, and, and this is, drives me crazy. Homosexuality is sin. No, homosexual behavior is sin. Homosexual behavior is sin. Homosexual identity is brokenness. But the state of being vulnerable is just humanity. Right. Temptation is not a Temptation sin. Vulnerability is not a sin. Not a sin. No. And yet, like, there's been a, a movement of not only criticizing those who are trying to help the church understand, but even, like, this viewpoint of anyone who has ever or does experience same-sex attraction is disqualified from any ministry. Thank you so much, Drew. I really appreciate you. And just I just love hearing what we've been a part of and just all the adventures that God has you on. And so thank you so, so much. Thank you for tuning into Dialogue, a podcast of A Living Letter Ministries. We air a new episode every first Monday of the month, but we post every day in our social media pages, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to keep you encouraged and also keep you connected to what the Lord is doing in and through our ministries. If you have any questions or you want to submit topic requests, you can do that at my email. Cynthia at a living letter ministries.org, and we may cover your specific question or topic request in a future episode. Cynthia at a living letter.org. Thank you so much for listening. We bless you and we love you.